Do you love this podcast? Do you wish you could learn even more? Well, we have an online class bundle. Our online class bundle is comprised of three online classes, Beautifying Your Home for Less, Styling Your Home, and The Fundamentals of Feng Shui. Each one of those three classes is between 30 and 45 minutes long and chock-filled with visuals and tips, things that will help you to style your own space or help out with other spaces. Additionally, with the pack of three classes, you get an autographed copy of my book, Affordable Interior Design. You get all of that for only $99. Once again, that's the three online classes as well as the book for only $99. You just go to affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes to buy your bundle today. And if one of those classes sounded intriguing, but maybe you already have my book or some of the other topics are not of interest, you can buy the classes individually at that site as well. Each class is $40. So head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes to get your bundle or your online class today. You don't need a high-end designer or a lot of money to get a luxe look. Be your own interior designer with big design, small budget. Here's your host, Betsy Helmuth. Happy Friday. Happy Friday night, everybody. Hopefully you guys are relaxing by the fire, watching a movie with your families. I am doing a long overdue broadcast, and I apologize for my radio silence, but as you guys know, I have been sick. I have been so morning, afternoon, and night sick that it has been debilitating, and it's good to be feeling better. Uh, I'm at week 13 of this pregnancy, and I am starting to see the light. And I feel like I can function. And the last thing that I've been wanting to do is be on air, trying to sound my best or look my best or feel my best. It's just not been a time of my best. But I am emerging. I'm emerging from my sickness. I still haven't put on makeup, but I did find my chapstick. So there you go. All right. Well, while I've been away, and by away, I mean in the bed in my office, uh, lots of great questions have rolled right in. So I'm excited to dive in and get to quite a few of them today. And I plan on churning out another episode very soon so I can answer even more. Let me just hop right in with Haley's question. Haley writes, Hi Betsy, we bought a charming house in from built in the 1900s in a town in the Hudson Valley. Sadly, the seller was a builder who renovated it top to bottom and removed all the historical details. It now has crappy, shiny vinyl floors that I hate. Home Depot style bathrooms, cheap lighting, crappy doors. From the outside, the house is nice, but inside it's so sterile. Other than changing out the light fixtures, how do you suggest we bring back some historical historical character and charm. Should we redo the floors? Thanks, Haley. So luckily, Haley attached some pictures for me to look at so I could breeze through these. And yes, from the inside, which are the only pictures I have, you would never know that this is an historical home. It does look really renovated with gray painted walls, white trim, 
You mentioned those vinyl floors that do have a rustic quality to them, so they don't look super contemporary. You can see a lot of knots. It has a variation of sort of an ashy brown tone. But we've even got the um, two-color cabinets with the gray on the bottom, the white on the top. By all appearances, this would seem to be a contemporary space. I'm going to take your word for it that it is not. One thing that we wouldn't want to do, one might be inclined to say, well, let's add some architectural trim. Let's add some crown molding. I don't want to do that in this case because you have a lot of soffits. You have some strange beams that are coming down probably to support where they opened up walls because so many of these older style homes were broken into small rooms. But those small rooms uh, inside the walls held support beams that helped to keep the house up. And when we remove the walls, we can't always lose those beams. So it looks like you needed a beam in the ceiling to open up that kitchen to the living dining. It looks like you needed some beams that came from the floor to the ceiling to support the center of the space. And it's not the perfect place for crown molding because we have these soffits and we have these encased beams that are six inches high. And if you put crown up there, it's just going to look like a little tiny frame above three inches of sheetrock. It's going to look bizarre. Now, the other thing that we could do, you know, to add that architectural charm back is we could make the baseboards higher than the four inches that they appear to be. You know, something historical would have been more like five to six inch high baseboards that maybe have some detailing or some carving to them. But in your case, you do not appear to have high ceilings. So that will just exacerbate the fact that these ceilings are a standard height of eight feet. And I don't think that that will add the character we're looking for because it will just emphasize the fact that we don't have high ceilings in this space. The other thing one might do is install some chair rails, right? Some molding that kind of is around the center of the room that would give that architectural detail that would bring it back to the era in which it was built. But the problem with that, again, is that we don't have high ceilings. So that chair rail will visually split the room into two and again, emphasize the fact that these are not high ceilings. I really think what you're going to need to do in this space, besides of course changing out the light fixtures, would be to add furniture that does harken back a little bit. So rather than doing super contemporary furniture, you might get a sofa that has rolled arms. You might get an English roll arm sofa that has kind of a lower rolled arm. You might think about... I'm just looking a little bit more closely. You might think about, even though this is kind of expensive, replacing all the silver door handles, hinges, and fixtures with wrought iron versions, right? So that could be a consideration that would make it feel a little bit older, even a brass, even if you went with some of those historical crystal and brass handles. But you tell me that these are cheap doors, so that might again, be too strong of a juxtaposition between these beautiful, ornate, expensive handles and these cheap hollow cord doors. I think I would just insist that you do some drapes that will soften this. And again, drapes are more common to that era than, say, blinds. And then some nice big rugs. Now, of course, you could change out the flooring. And because you hate it, I think you should change out the flooring. I don't like anybody using the H word in their home. But the problem with that is then you're going to have to probably remove these baseboards. And you're going to be opening quite a can of worms. Additionally, if the floor gets any higher, if you choose something that's not vinyl and it does have more of a thickness to it, you might have to shave some of these doors. And these doors are hollow core. They're super cheap. 
I don't know if you can shave them and maintain their integrity. So I'd rather you just get some nice big area rugs that will not only add some color pattern and texture, but could be more historical leaning like some vintage rugs, some overdyed Persians, or some just true Persian traditional rugs. But I think your touches are going to need to be with the artwork and furniture and not so much architectural, save the fixtures, which we all know you should change out in a hurry because you have those very contemporary cylindrical um fixtures above the kitchen island you have a very contemporary ceiling fan that actually looks like it's in bronze but all the other selections they made were brushed silver so you should definitely give the builder my name and i can help him pick finishes with his next space all right i hope that helped Haley. let's move on to numi's email Numi writes, Hi, my name is Numi, and I have a problem I'm hoping you can help me with. This is my favorite podcast. Me and my husband have been living in Scotland for two years, but it's time for us to move back to Sweden where we're from. We've rented a fully furnished apartment here, so we don't really own any furniture, and we will need to start from scratch. I'm excited for the move, and we found a really cute apartment in an old, charming building. However, It is just a single room and a kitchen, smaller than we have ever been used to as a couple. I don't really know how to place the furniture in this very small room. It will come unfurnished. There is room for a kitchen table, so this room needs to act as a bedroom and a living room, but in the kitchen, we can keep the dining table. I would like to separate the bed, perhaps the bookcase, but I don't know if there's enough room to do that. What is your view on loft beds for an adult? How about a sofa bed? I need some serious help. By the way, congratulations on your pregnancy. I am so happy for your family. Kind regards, Numi. Numi, that is going to be a challenge. I am worried for you. If my husband and I move to into a studio, never mind with our two and a half kids and our dog, but if we moved into a studio, we would be in a world of hurt. It is really hard to get your personal space, and I'm so excited that your kitchen is separate with room for a dining table so that somebody could be at the dining table watching Netflix and the other person could be in the main room on their iPad. So at least there is some separation, and I personally have lived in between 7 and 11 studios in my lifetime, and I have a particular fondness for them. There is something about this tiny living that is really appealing but also forces you to realize what's important, maybe even what's important in your relationship. And no doubt, if it doesn't break you, it will make you stronger. And it sounds like it's only going to make you stronger, Numi. You have a strong relationship moving around as much as you already have from Sweden to Scotland. All right, so in terms of layout, I am not okay with a loft bed for adults. A loft bed is fine when there's one person sleeping in it, but when you invite somebody else... Uh, It gets a little rickety up there, not speaking from any (laughs) experience, maybe a little experience. Uh, So it gets a little rickety up there. And also you're very close to the ceiling, which limits your mobility, especially in a place like this, which has roughly standard height ceilings. So not saying that you're going to want to be super mobile in a loft bed, but I'm just using my imagination and assuming you may want that option. And I don't think that a sofa bed, I'm sorry, loft bed is going to get you there. That brings me to your next point. What about a sofa bed, Betsy? You know, I would be fine with a sofa bed if you were just one person. 
living in this studio. I don't think it's super compromising. I lived in several studios with a futon, which is essentially a sleeper sofa, and I was quite happy. That being said, is it sustainable for two people all the time? I have questions. You know, you have to remove the bedding every single day. You have to fold it up every single day. It not only takes discipline, but it also takes a place where you're going to put all that bedding. The two pillows, the extra long blanket, the sheet that he likes to sleep in, the specialty throw pillow that you like to use. It just adds a lot more bulk and then you do have to find a place to put that stuff every day. Unless you guys are very fastidious and organized, I look in my crystal ball and see, hey, who didn't put up the sofa bed? Why didn't you put up the sofa bed? Why'd you throw the pillows on the ground? Sounds like marital strife to me. I would be inclined to consider for you a Murphy bed. Now, the thing about a Murphy bed, pros and cons, is that when you fold it down, of course, it feels like a real bed. It's nice and secure. And you don't have to find a new place for your bedding. You can fold the bedding up into the Murphy bed. Now, you can't actually utilize the square footage below the Murphy bed when it is folded up for any furniture that's not going to move every day. So that can be limiting, right? Because you've got to push the furniture back and forth or just use it as open space. But I think that that could be quite appealing here. The problem uh, with considering a Murphy bed is that they're quite expensive, especially a decent quality one. And again, we're not going for this rickety stuff, right? So a decent quality Murphy bed can be a challenge. And if you're only going to be here for, say, three years or less, I don't think it's worth the investment. I might just be inclined for you to get a queen bed and put it in this room. Um, That would be what I would be inclined to do. And then to get a sofa, and to find some ways, you know, I'm not a big fan of partitioning a studio with, say, a bookcase or a curtain because Secret's Out, it's a studio, and it doesn't actually feel that partitioned. In fact, it can take up space, it can remove sight lines, it can make you look like you're in denial, like you wanted to be in a one-bedroom, but you couldn't afford it or it wasn't available, and so you picked this and you're constantly compromising. It's like choosing a partner or a husband knew me and... Knowing that husband's limitations but constantly fighting against them, it does not yield uh, positivity. But I'm thinking for you, as I mentioned, Murphy bed or just a real queen bed. And when designing a studio, the most important piece of furniture to consider is the bed. Not only because it's the biggest piece, but also because it's got the most criteria. You want to be in a place that's dark. You want to be in a place that's away from noise. You want to be in a place that feels private. You want to be in a place so that when you walk in the space, you don't immediately walk into your bed. You want it to kind of take a back seat, but at the same time, it's the priority piece where you want to have a restful night's sleep. So there's lots of factors to consider. But basically take that queen bed in your mind and move it all around the room, weighing the pros and cons of where it could go. I think you'll find there's just a couple places in this room where it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. And then you'll fill in with those other pieces like the sofa, the clothing storage, the accent tables, the lighting, etc. But that would be my advice to you and I really appreciate you writing in. So we have had some action on Facebook. Let me go there and see what I've been missing. So let's see. Some people have been writing in. Donna writes, Hi, Betsy. For my bedroom, I have medium gray walls. I have a dark gray rug now, and I am getting tired of it. What color do you suggest? Thanks. Well, Donna, uh, gray is a neutral. It's a neutral. What couldn't you choose? What couldn't you pick? 
Um, the world is your oyster and I hope you've started with an inspiration piece because my question for you is what colors are in your inspiration piece? Now an inspiration piece is a centrally located pillow, piece of art, patterned drape, patterned rug that contains three Roy G. Biv colors or more. From there you will choose those colors and those will serve as the accents or pops that you layer over your neutral gray. So Donna, what's your inspiration piece? There we go. Uh, Kyle writes, Betsy, I hope you are feeling better and your morning sickness has died down. So yes, while I don't necessarily look better, Kyle, I am feeling better. And what has replaced the morning sickness but extreme fatigue? So don't mind the bags under my eyes. You know, I have been pregnant twice before and it has never been this real. It's never been this real. So there we go. And now it's time for a quick commercial break. asked for it and we have answered the call. For years you've been saying, Betsy, you're talking about all these great design concepts, but we can't visualize them. You're describing the picture that the listener sent in of their problem and we wish we could see that picture too. After all, a picture is worth a thousand words and I do my best to describe them, but there's nothing like seeing it for yourself. And that's why Affordable Interior Design, the podcast, now has a YouTube channel. Not only do we have a YouTube channel where you could see recordings and clips of these podcast episodes, we also have an Instagram, a Facebook, and so many other exciting things. You should check it out. Head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash links. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash L-I-N-K-S links. And when you go there, you will see links to our YouTube page, our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and more. Please check it out, follow and subscribe so you can see everything I'm talking about. Let me get back into the mailbag because we have some more questions coming in. So let's see. Numi sent me lots of beautiful pictures of this studio, and I'm excited to see what you come up with, by the way. But my next question comes from Amy. Hi, Betsy. This question may be out of season, but I was wondering if you've had any success finding a source for affordable patio furniture. I know there are lots of places to look, but do you have any suggestions about where and when to get the best bargains? Thanks for your help, Amy. So Amy, it is so interesting that you asked that question right now because it is almost Halloween. And as we know, and when you're purchasing decor items for Halloween, when you're purchasing candy or costumes, if you buy it before Halloween, you're going to have a really good selection, right? Really good selection. The world's your oyster. You'll be able to find lots of things. But you're not going to get any sales. There's not going to be any discounts or anything like that until we start kissing Halloween until we start getting to, you know, four or five days before Halloween. That's when you'll see some sales start to kick in, right? That's when you'll see the 25% off, buy one mask, get one free. That's when those sales kick in. Then of course there's Halloween day and there is tons of uh, promos to be had on that day because everybody's trying to liquidate and catch you as you're running out the door to go trick-or-treating. And then, of course, for the week after Halloween, you're going to get the very best deals around. That's when the candy is going to be slashed to a third of the price, when you'll have 
the leftover dregs of the costumes, but they'll be 75% off that witch's broom, that, um, I don't know, axe, fake blood. But if you wait till, say, Veterans Day, November 11th or so, you're not going to find anything for Halloween. And should you try to shop at online vendors or Halloween Spirit or something like that, you're going to, again, pay that premium. Well, it's just like with patio furniture. With patio furniture, you're going to get, you know, kind of not great deals. You're just going to be paying retail if you're shopping May, June. By the time you get July, not only is July one of the two best months for home sales in general, January and July, but it's also the time when you will be getting those liquidating sales. You are almost kissing Halloween. It is already hot. That is when the sales are there. That is when the inventory is also there. By the time you get to August and end of August, they're starting to have these clearances. You're not going to have the same selection, right? Things have already been on sale in July and now it's just what's left over, but it starts to go deeply discounted. This is when you get that 60%, that 70%. But if you wait past September 15th, you're back to paying that premium. You either have the dregs of the clearance aisle or you have what they just keep in stock but very minimally and they still charge a premium for. So that's how the cycle works. Now, in terms of where I like to shop, I love Overstock for patio furniture. They have a very nice selection. I've heard really good things about Costco, but I had a hard time capturing the Costco patio furniture when it was actually in stock, so I went with Overstock instead. I love Crate and Barrel, but again, if you don't get it in August, you're going to be paying way too much. Um... Those are really my go-tos. I mean, I think that Pottery Barn and Room and Board have beautiful styles. I think that they have impeccable quality, but the price points are astronomical. I mean, these are things that are going to get rained on, snowed on. I bring some of it in with the seasons and some of it I do not. And it's going to take a licking and it's going to keep on ticking, but I will have paid thousands of dollars. I just can't bring myself to do that. I also really love restoration hardware. So if you make a lot more money than me, it might be worth the splurge uh, because I think the quality is really good and they have such decadent large pieces for big backyards and patios. But again, you're paying that premium and I would rather go for something like Overstock where I don't mind if it rains a little. So there we go, Amy. I hope that helped. I'm going to end today with a bang. This question comes from Brooke, and Brooke is in a time crunch. So I wanted to get these questions answered, even though there's kind of a few of them. And I haven't reviewed them all in advance, so I'm truly going to be speaking off the cuff here. So she writes, Hi, my name is Brooke, and I am a freshman in high school. I am doing a passion project about interior designers because when I grow up, I would like to be one myself. I have 10 questions to ask you about being an interior designer, and I would really appreciate it if you would answer them if it's not too much of a problem. My first question is, every interior designer has a signature style of house that they like designing best. What is your signature style? I do not have a signature style, Brooke, so I think that that is a fallacy. Not every designer has a signature style. When I started this business... 13 years ago when I started in design, I of course got into design because I had an affinity for certain styles. I loved mid-century modern, but my favorite part of mid-century modern was the mod. 
I love graphic wallpaper, punchy colors, bright oranges. I love anything formica and acrylic and plastic and shiny and wow, basically Brady Bunch, right? That was where I was when I started and still a piece of me yearns to go back to those naive roots. But as I've been a designer and I design in so many different styles every single week, that's truly been diluted. And I have an appreciation for so many styles that when I was designing my own house, I had to hire one of my designers to help me channel my ideas because I liked so much that it was really hard to narrow my focus on what's right for this house and this time in my life. And as I've mentioned before in my podcast, you know, I only moved into this house three years ago. And I think if I were designing it again, I would go with a completely different look because I don't have a signature style. My favorite types of places to design are not based on style, but based on budget. I love working with tight budgets. I love a challenge. I love meeting somebody who doesn't know it's possible because they don't have a lot of money and showing them what the opportunities are, even with their limited funds. That's my favorite thing to do because I think it is truly the most rewarding to see people who had very low expectations be wowed by what we can get done. So that's my favorite thing to do. You mentioned um, that you wanted to know what my least favorite thing about designing a house or being an interior designer is. My least favorite thing is dealing with damages. Like, you know, we do a lot of our shopping online, but even if we didn't, even if you shop high-end retailers or you shop custom, you know, I do have a background in high-end interior design and I have worked with several high-end clients, clients, events, even at, even at, and the quality is just not always there. And even if the quality is there, by the time it ships from France in its crate or is manufactured in wherever and then imported over or even made here and just shipped UPS, there's always damage that takes place. It's just hard to get that beautiful structural integrity. Maybe it's these days or maybe it's because of our shipping methods. I don't know. But that's always disappointing to me. Something arrives scratched. Something isn't impeccable. Uh, and I think that's the most time-consuming, too, is dealing with those issues, feeling frustrated that it's not perfect, having to deal with the returns. Uh, that's why I suggest that people don't buy those legacy pieces anymore. That's just a mentality of a bygone era. And that kind of stuff isn't necessarily around even more anymore, even at high price points. Uh, so I think that's the most frustrating thing, is the quality of today's pieces in general. That's a broad stroke. All right. Uh, when I go to design a house, what do I look for in the house? Well, when I go to design the house, the very first thing I look for is what do these people want to do in here? What are the zones or functions that we need? And how can I make them all fit? Because I design mostly in urban areas or I design in the suburbs. And in the suburbs of New York City, the spaces are historical and small. Or the land lots are small. So even if the house is new, it is not palatial. Like say if I was designing in Texas or something. Uh, so I'm always feeling constrained by the square footage. And by, you know, my clients are so interesting. And they have so many things they want to get done. And so many things that they want to store that... I have to make each space multifunctional. And so that's really my first thought. And then you asked, how do I manage a project or a budget that I have to work with? 
Well, with our model, we basically tell people what to do and buy. Then they go out and buy the things and put them where we've told them. So I'm not really managing the project from start to finish, but I manage the budget by keeping a spreadsheet. So I have a spreadsheet that's a smart sheet, if you will. So it's all encoded with our discounts and the totals and it will add it for me and I can change the quantities. So I really rely on that spreadsheet to watch the budget for me. And as I'm sourcing and making my selections, I'll look at that bottom line and see, oh, can I splurge on this rug? In fact, that just happened with a client today. They had a $6,000 budget And by the time I got down there, I was like, oh, I have some more money to spend. I'm going to include a higher-end rug selection. I'm going to go ahead and show them that expensive lamp that I was sitting on. So that's how I work the budget. And then you ask, where do I find inspiration? Hmm, you know where I find my inspiration? I find my inspiration from my clients. I really do. I used to be a painter and I used to make paintings for people's apartments. But when I was in design or I'm sorry, um, art school, you know, you would get a bowl of apples and your teacher would say, paint these apples. And I would be like, ugh, I don't want to paint those apples. That is so boring. But I'm going to be spending a week with these apples. I need to find something about them that I really love, something that inspires me. So when I meet my clients, well, I don't know them at all. They're kind of like the apples, even though I'm excited about them, whereas apples are not my favorite fruit. But I'm excited about these clients, but I don't know them from Adam, right? So I have them fill out this questionnaire so I can get to understand them more closely. And then I take my inspiration from them. There's something I need to fall in love with about my clients so I can reflect back to them what I see. Just like with those apples. I have to interpret those apples. I have to fall in love with the shine on the peel. Or I have to fall in love with the scuff on one of the bases. Or the leaf that's a little bit curled from the stem. And that draws me in to the experience. And it keeps feeding me while I'm working on this project. Same with the clients. Oh, you love to ski. You have kids that are making your house feel cluttered. You're wanting to start a new career and write from home uh, freelance, all these things really inspire me to reflect back what I've heard them tell me and to show them how passionate I am about them, their needs, and their space. So that's where I find my inspiration. I don't actually read many design magazines. I uh, don't watch much design TV because all that sort of feels like work. But I really dig into not only what's on the shelves right now, but to who the person is that I'm working with. That keeps every project fresh for me. What does a successful project mean for me? Well, a successful project would mean that I have met my clients' needs and that they feel happy, that they can live in a space that's not only pretty but also practical. How many hours do I work a week in an office or in a house that I'm designing? So I take three clients a week and I spend two hours at their house each client. The other days of the week are spent at the office, um, but... I do a lot of admin work. I'm not only an interior designer, I own an interior design business. So I'm much more of an entrepreneur these days than I am a designer. I spend much more time thinking about marketing, SEO, our next ad campaign, um, the phones ringing, the leads, logging data. I spend much more time doing that than I do picking out sofas these days. The hardest thing about being an interior designer is... I think truly stepping into the shoes of your client and understanding what's going to excite them, what's going to really be a home run for them. I think that's the hardest thing 
Uh, and it took me years to learn. You know, you have to deeply listen to somebody who doesn't know what they want exactly. So you have to read between the lines. Uh, what happened the other day? Something happened the other day where oh, somebody said, oh, you know, I really don't think that that rug is going to be the right thing in my living room. And I was training some new designers and they were like, telling the lady, yes, yes, it will be the right thing in your living room. It's low pile. It's great for pets. It's got all these qualities. And I stopped them and I said, she's not saying she doesn't think it's going to be a fit in her living room. She's saying she doesn't like the rug and she doesn't want to hurt your feelings. You just need to pivot immediately and say, got it. What don't you think is a fit about this rug? Let's find a new option. So I think learning those nuances because sometimes a client is afraid to tell you what they really think or they don't know how to express what they really think. You have to interpret what they're feeling and even interpret their inspiration pictures because maybe they don't want that entire room to look just like that, but maybe there's a feel they want to evoke. And maybe we can do that in a different way. And you lastly ask, what degree did I earn to become an interior designer? Well, many of you know I did not earn an interior design degree. I have a fine arts degree and a theater degree, which is why I love to broadcast my tips and help you guys um, on these platforms. But yes, I was a painter and I was an actress. And then I found a love for interior design because I would watch interior design shows, specifically trading spaces, while I was making my paintings. So it would be on in the background for hours on a loop while I would be painting apples. And I think it really sunk in. And then I would go make these paintings for people's apartments and their apartments were totally tragic. So instead, I would say, let me create a design plan for you. Then I went to work for a famous designer, uh, Tom Felicia, as an apprentice. And there I learned truly the principles of design and I got to glimpse the industry. And I realized that high-end clients weren't potentially my jam because I come from Missouri, very poor and humble roots. Uh, I couldn't fathom spending $60,000 on a couch, let alone $6,000 on a couch. I mean, I'm a $1,700 couch kind of gal. But uh, yeah, so I realized that while interior design was my calling, Spending a lot of money was not, and thus interior, affordable interior design was born in 2005. Brooke, I hope this helped with your school project. And guys, I hope this helps with your projects in general. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad that I got to hop back on the air this week. And I'll be back with you again very soon, barring any bouts of nausea. Bye. Are you a fan of this podcast? Do you wish there was even more juicy content for you to sink your ears into? Well, there is. You can become a premium member of this podcast for $5.99 a month and get full access to an archive of over 50 bonus episodes. Additionally, we release a bonus episode every single month. That's a ton of extra content, including my personal interior design diaries, extra tips, my talking about trends, and so much more. Additionally, you'll be keeping us on the airwaves 
each and every week because your premium membership money goes directly back to making this podcast amazing. Check us out at affordableinteriordesign.com. Click on podcast to learn more and to become a premium member today. A big thank you to our amazing producer, Catherine Heller, to Aton and the MBCR House Band, and to Affordable Interior Design, the sponsor of this podcast and the premier place to get an amazing look on a budget. Check out affordableinteriordesign.com. If you guys love the show, the very best way to support us is by spreading the word. Tell your friends or write us an awesome review on iTunes. So until next week, guys, thanks so much for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.